We're opening to Joshua chapter 5 today. Specifically, we'll be looking at verses 10, 11, and 12. Remember, in this part of Joshua, in the first five chapters that we've been going through, the nation has been preparing, the nation of Israel has been preparing to enter and to conquer the promised land of Canaan. God has led them through the Jordan River, displaying His power and presence with them. They responded in obedience by circumcising the males of the nation, which corresponds to baptism in the New Testament, which then sets us up for the second sacrament, Passover, which we find in our passage today, Joshua 5, verses 10 through 12. Let's pray that these words would not merely be words on a page to those without spiritual insight, but that these would be the words of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us by your Spirit. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear these words of yours, that they would fill us with life, and that it would change us to go from this place more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hear God's very words from Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening, on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. You've heard it said, you are what you eat. Food appears in the Bible over 1,200 times. Food is important. Meals abound as you read through the Bible, and the social connections made and displayed by the gatherings around the table are immensely important. This passage today talks about three different meals in three short verses. First, there's the Passover which God gave as a celebration and preparation for the exodus from Egypt. The manna, which God provided for Israel to eat during the the generation that wandered in the wilderness. And finally, now that they're in Canaan, the fruit of the land. And it's exactly in the three meals that we're going to structure the passage, the sermon today. So we're going to look first at the Passover, and then the fruit of the land, and then we'll look at manna in verse 12. So the Passover, the fruit of the land, and then manna. Let's look at the Passover. The Passover in our passage is the taste of redemption. This Passover that Israel celebrates as they have just passed into the promised land, it celebrates what God has done and what God will do, specifically in removing his judgment from his people. So you have to think back to Israel 40 years earlier, they were still enslaved in Egypt. And the very first Passover happened. And what they did is they slaughtered the perfect spotless lamb. And they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their house so that the destroyer, as he came through, would pass by those who were covered in the blood of the lamb. God will pay for the sins of of those who have the blood of the Lamb on their door. 
God will remove His judgment from those who have the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts. Although they are not inherently any better than the Egyptians or even Pharaoh himself, but this was given as a sign that they trusted in their God and that God was going to provide the blood of the Lamb to take away their sins and to take God's judgment, the judgment that they deserve. This was the anticipation of Jesus, the sacrificial lamb whose sacrifice actually paid the price for sins because animal blood, as we read in Hebrews, can never take away sins. So this Passover anticipated that there would need to be a full payment for the sins of sinners. A perfect lamb that would remove God's judgment from us. This Passover celebrates what God has done and what God will do, also in freeing them from their bondage to sin and enabling them to live in obedience. They had had one master before. It was Pharaoh. They were slaves. They were put to manual labor, hard labor, for 400 years. And in their first Passover, 40 years prior, in Egypt, they were preparing to leave the grip of that slave master, Pharaoh. Their new master, be a different master, a benevolent one, a good one, a glorious master. God himself would be their God. And he spoke with them and he gave them his law that they might obey and he dwelled with them. As long as he was their king and their protector, not the strongest of the human enemies could stand up against God. Not even Pharaoh could stand with God leading his people. And God continued in his patience with them as they sought to live in obedience to their God and to his law. Yet we saw how that first generation did not obey. In this generation, God gives another chance to obey by giving them the Passover and to obey his law as he gives them this land. The Passover celebrates what God has done and what God will do by taking them also from a land of bondage to a land of wandering into their permanent home in particular out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, wandering in the wilderness, crossing the Jordan. All this has happened since the first Passover, and now they have come into their land that God has given them. This generation has a markedly different attitude than the prior generation, the wilderness generation. That generation had forsaken the sacrament of circumcision. This generation not only obeyed by observing the sacrament of circumcision, but they also obey the very specific commands of Passover from Exodus 12. Look at how it's described to us here in Joshua 5, verse 10. They kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening. Those details are not unimportant. Exodus 12 says that you are to keep the Passover on the 14th day in the evening. This is the exact same day. 40 days later, 40 years later after that first Passover. And it was in the evening just as God has commanded. And they had prepared, as we saw since chapter 4, verse 19. Because you may remember back in chapter 4, verse 19, we were given another timestamp. It says the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. So for these last four days, they have been preparing. They were washed as they were baptized in the Jordan River, they were circumcised and now they are prepared to take the Passover. As it was commanded, you must be circumcised to take the Passover in Exodus 12. 
And it says they did it here in Gilgal. This is an impermanent camp. This is a temporary site. It's implying that this isn't all there is. But we also read that it says at the end of verse 10, they were on the plains of Jericho. This is looking forward. Passover doesn't just look back to what God has done, but it looks forward to what he will do. And they look forward to the very next chapter. You may see the title in your Bible at Joshua 6 is the fall of Jericho. The conquest is about to begin. The end of these first five chapters in, in Joshua is coming to a close as they have now completed the preparations to take the land. We'll see when we get to manna here shortly that this is indeed a whole new era for the people of Israel. They're no longer tied to Egypt. So as we look at our lives and we look at what's going on here in the plains of Jericho, we have to realize that the sinfulness of man has not changed since then. If God had sent the destroyer to kill not just the firstborns in each house, but if God had sent the destroyer to kill every single person in every single house in Egypt, slave or free, Egyptian or Hebrew, he would have been entirely justified. Now you might say, okay, that's a bit harsh. But God has already shown immense patience with all parties involved here. And each has proved to be sinful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The act of the destroyer to strike down sinners would have been entirely, entirely just. God's judgment could come justly and deservedly against every single sinner. That is every single person. This is the reality for every human as descendants of our first parents who fell in the garden. What this does is it sets us up for that true forgiveness of those sins. This Passover celebrates Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He is called the Passover lamb. And as the Passover looked back to what God had done in removing his judgment from his people there in Egypt by the blood of the spotless lamb, so it looks forward to the actual effective blood of the true eternal spotless lamb, Jesus who was offered as a sacrifice in the place of God's covenant people, who took God's, he took God's judgment for God's people and his blood averted the deserved judgment. And he gives them instead, not death, but eternal life. This is the gospel. And this is entirely uninventable and unintuitive news. It can only be received by faith by those who realize that they are as stubborn and purposeless and unholy as the Israelites themselves were, and who look to that Passover lamb, Jesus, to save them from the death that their sins have earned. When we celebrate the Passover, well, specifically the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted, we taste redemption as well. The very completion of salvation by Jesus in his body on the tree. His blood given for us. His body pierced for us. And in that we find the forgiveness of our sins and God's judgment poured out on him rather than on us. That's the Passover that they ate. That's the first meal. The other meal, the second meal here, the fruit of the land. If the Passover was the taste of redemption, this is the taste of covenant blessing in the fruit of the land. 
Israel now with their feet on the shore of the promised land. That's why it's so important that the text tells us in in verse 10 that they were on the plains of Jericho. Many times throughout the Old Testament, the promise has been once you enter the land, you will eat of the land. And they have entered the land. Their feet are on the plains of Jericho. And they are receiving the blessings of the covenant. They are receiving food from this land. Now, you might say, okay, If they're just as sinful as I just explained, why are they getting blessings of the covenant as if they had kept the covenant and earned blessings? Shouldn't they be getting covenant curses? And indeed, there were times that they received covenant curses. But here, we see on display, the whole point is God's grace. God's grace in pouring out the blessings of the covenant for people who don't deserve it. That's the whole thing. It's the one true God setting his grace upon them with circumcision, with the Passover, and with the giving of the land. And he's marking them out as participants in this covenant of grace. The lamb of the Passover that they ate was a temporary placeholder that delayed God's judgment. And instead of the sinners receiving the judgment they deserved, they received the spotlessness of that lamb that was killed for them, whose blood covered them, and they ate the bread and the lamb whose perfection became their perfection. Insofar as it pointed to the real lamb, Jesus, whose blood would effectively wash away the sins of the world. They looked to Jesus in faith, even if they did not yet know that his name would be Jesus. So had they kept the covenant? Yes. Because Jesus kept it for them, even as they had broken it with their own hands and hearts and minds, they are able to receive the blessings of the covenant because Jesus kept it for them. And so as a sacrament alongside circumcision, it's a sign and a seal of this Passover. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace for those who trust in Jesus by faith. Because every Israelite who trusted God's salvation by faith, for them the Passover was a sign that God was going to send this sacrifice to pay for their sins and that their sins for their whole lives would be paid for by someone else and that they would not be judged. And with the faith that they exercised by the Spirit working in them, the Passover sealed to them all the power of the substitutionary atonement and the promises of fulfillment that came in Jesus, including the gift of the land flowing with milk and honey. So that's why they're receiving covenant blessings rather than covenant curses. And it was in connection with the eating of the Passover that they were then able to eat the abundance of the land, the fruit of the land, the produce of the land, specifically because the Passover sealed to them the blessings of the righteous lamb that it also signaled to them. All right, so what about this food in particular? Well, let's look at verse 11. It says, And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And then down in verse 12, it's called the fruit of the land of Canaan. The foods described are, are in fact, difficult to compare across biblical texts. By doing a word study, you don't gain a lot of information about what's meant here. The produce of the land has no parallels. The parched grain has a few that show that this is probably a dehydrated or a roasted or a preserved grain of some kind. But the general idea is that these are a bread-like produce of the land. The unleavened cakes, however, 
gives us some understanding. This has direct parallel to many instances where it's always translated as unleavened bread, especially in the Passover, many times in the first Passover in Exodus 12, and also in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and also in many temple and tabernacle offerings in Leviticus. So when you get to Joshua 24, where, where the author is going to look back at what God has done for Israel, This is described like this. He says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. You're coming into this land. You didn't plant that vineyard, but you get all the benefits of it. You didn't plant that olive tree, but you get to eat the olives. You didn't labor on this land, yet it yields for you. This is very specifically covenant language from Deuteronomy 6. And when I say Deuteronomy 6, some of you might remember this is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And teach your children when you rise and when you sit, when you go out and when you come in. And it says it this way in Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 12. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you. Okay, since their feet are on the plains of Jericho with vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Does that sound familiar to Joshua 24? And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's happening here is they are eating of the land, a land they did not work, fruit they did not plant. This is God saying, I'm keeping my covenant with you. And you get the blessings of faithfulness. But be careful not to forget me in your abundance. And so it's profound. Even at the very beginning here, just after they have crossed over the river and have been circumcised and take the Passover, they already possess the land in a very real sense. Do they possess it in its fullness? Not yet. But they already possess this inheritance that God has prepared for them. But according to God's promises, we shouldn't be surprised that he gives them the land and that he is so gracious because he promised all the way back in Genesis 12 that he would give this very land to Abraham's offspring. And here they enter after those 400 years in slavery. And you see that these covenant blessings are immediate. It says on that very day in verse 11, this is a God who longs to keep his promises. He's not looking for reasons not to give his blessings. If that were his motive operation, then no one would receive blessings because he could find every reason not to pour out blessings. But on that very day following the Passover, he pours out his covenant blessings. And these are, these are parallel with all these promised agricultural abundances that we see in Leviticus 26, where God says he's going to give rain in its season and the, yen, the, the land will yield its increase and the trees of the field will yield their fruit and there will be a long harvest season and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. And Deuteronomy 4 says similarly, you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. In Deuteronomy 28, it says you will be blessed in the field. And blessed shall be the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle. And blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. And so we see God pour out blessing upon blessing. And we also will see soon that that blessing will include security in the land against enemies. 
because now the iniquity of the Amorites is complete and now God will punish those sinful nations in that land for their wickedness. That's why obedience on Israel's part is commanded as a proper response. God doesn't say, be obedient so that you can get the land. We see that that is exactly what Israel was not. He said, because you have been given these blessings of redemption and these, this covenant abundance, therefore the proper response is obey out of gratitude, out of worship. This is the proper response. And with it comes the promise of great abundance. We deserve those curses. We deserve the famine. We deserve the drought and the destitution. And we deserve defeat. We deserve to be those who have built the vineyards and don't get to eat of them. We are those who deserve to till the land and not get its fruit. Yet Jesus gives the abundance of covenant blessings. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Because of God's saving relationship with his people and their reception of his grace by faith, not by good works, by faith, he enables them then to live from the abundance of his presence and to properly respond in good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in them, that we would be obedient and grateful recipients of his covenant blessings. Christians, do you realize that you have been given abundant, infinite blessings in Jesus? Even now, we get a taste of it today and we anticipate its fullness one day. We have possession of the land now, that inheritance that comes through Christ, even if we don't have this or don't see the fullness of it yet. On that day that we long for, all the enemies will be cast out, all wickedness will be gone, and Jesus himself will be seen as the source of all benefits and blessings, even as he is now, yet with a veil. Do you realize some of these benefits are actually detailed to us in Scripture? Like, we have access to grace right now because we've been justified. We have peace with God right now because we have been justified. We have an intercessor at the right hand of God in heaven right now because we've been justified. We have the comforter who is near to us right now because we have been justified in Jesus. And we are slowly and steadily over time seeing sin and death die within us because of the sanctifying work that flows from this justification in Jesus. The old person is dying in us right now. We're already tasting that fruit of the land, brothers and sisters, because we get to eat of that word of truth, that abundant life that we see in Jesus, that we read about in the gospel, that we see even here foreshadowed in Joshua 5. And it's something that will never fade. And because we've been brought near by the God of grace. That's the produce of the land. And I do look forward to eating it in fullness with you one day, but I celebrate the fact that we get to eat it together even now. Now let's look at manna. I don't know if you, like, like I, when I was a child, I had all these interesting conceptions of manna. Maybe being a southerner, I automatically thought it was a biscuit from Bojangles. But the more I've read about it, the more I realize it's more like a grain. But it's called multiple times bread from heaven or grain from heaven. 
It was a food that fell from heaven with the dew, as we read in Numbers 11. And the people called it manna, which means, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. And Moses explained, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Every time manna is described in scripture, it's with an emphasis on God's provision. Every time it's mentioned, it is to highlight, look at what God is doing for you. And so this manna is a taste of heavenly provision. It's a taste of heavenly provision. So it was a, a white grain, somehow both flaky and seed-like, depending on um, the passages that you're reading. Nehemiah 9 calls it bread from heaven. Psalm 78, grain from heaven. Numbers 8 describes it. it was a kind of substance you could put in a grain mill and you could grind it. The people went about and, and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. That's straight out of Numbers 11. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. So maybe that's where I got the biscuit idea from. But why did God give the manna? Well, first of all, because the people complained. Those who had been brought out of the wilderness out of slavery, they wanted to go back to slavery because they argued at least they had meat and leeks and onions and garlic and bread. And so God patiently provides. And he patiently proves that he is indeed providing for them despite their complaints by sending them manna. God also sent it to test them to see if they truly trusted him or if they were just looking out for their own comforts. Because you may remember when he sent manna, how much were they to gather? One day's worth. It fell every morning. Just like his mercies for us are new every morning, yet we don't believe that his grace will extend to tomorrow, and so we become hoarders and we become greedy. God was testing them, saying, I'm going to give you enough for today. Just take enough for today. If you take enough for tomorrow too, it's going to spoil it's going to prove the condition of your heart. And so it taught daily trust. If, there's, if God says get one day's worth, yet you see two days worth on the ground, wouldn't you be inclined to maybe get a little extra just in case it doesn't come tomorrow? It's like when you go to the buffet, but you're allowed to bring your own Tupperware. But God says just eat until you're full. Okay, that, that, that doesn't compute for sinners like us who are naturally untrusting. This is God's way of testing and training his people, saying, when I say I'm going to provide, do you believe me? Do you trust that you're going to have what you need tomorrow? We can so quickly look down on them and say, oh, stubborn Israelites, won't you learn to trust God? Why did you get two days worth of manna? All the while, we're worrying ourselves sick over whether we'll have a job in four months or whether we'll get that raise next round of performance reviews or whether we're building money in a retirement that we may never even live to see. God provides enough for his people today. He provides enough for you today and he will provide enough for you tomorrow, brothers and sisters. He doesn't promise a well-stocked backup of resources in your closets and in your barns. He doesn't promise that you're going to be able to control what comes next. He promises that he is in control of your future. He clothes us and he feeds us as he does the flowers. He grows us and warms us and protects us from the dangers of our sin and from the attacks of Satan and from the temptations of the world in ways that we don't even understand. He cares more about providing for us than we understand. 
more than we'll ever know. And so our catechism has a question specifically about God's providence, and it goes like this. What are God's works of providence? The answer is God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. There's nothing outside of God's control. And he will use it to provide and to carry you to completion because nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there will come a day when this questioning is over where we don't have to wonder, but what about next week? Because our faith will be full, but also all questioning and all pain and all drought will be gone. The famine will be gone. The land will only yield abundance. And that's the day when we see the abundance of the promised new heavens and the new earth. That's the day when our faith turns to sight. And until then, we step ahead, trusting that God is with us and has gone before us and comes behind us as he has promised. And so we get a glimpse of that type of confidence. We can be the people who only gather enough manna for today and trust tomorrow to the Lord in a couple ways. First of all, when we stop trusting the, Lord, the world and we start trusting the Lord, we are no longer seeking provision from somebody out here. We're seeking provision from the one who can provide. This is the moment of faith. This is when we see that Jesus is enough, that our sins can only be paid for by him and that we only find purpose in him. And then we are not our own gods because we are satisfied in Jesus. But also for those who have trusted in Jesus, he may be providing manna for us today. Yet we long for a day where we get to eat the fullness of the land, where it's no longer this temporary provision. But we get to see the fullness of his reign, the fullness of his kingdom, where there's no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow. And then we'll have 100% assurance as we are in his presence and see him face to face. And so this critical moment for Israel in Joshua 5 is indicating significant spiritual truths for believers for all times. First of all, this is a new era for them. This is a new era The old has gone. They're no longer receiving his extraordinary temporary provision of food from heaven as they wander in the wilderness. The manna was to serve as a type of a down payment that would guarantee their inheritance of the land. And God fed them this way until they received the land that he had promised. But now they're eating the abundance of the produce of the land. And they are now cut off from their past era. They're no longer defined by Egypt. They're no longer defined by the wandering generation that disobeyed. They're no longer connected to unfaithfulness or the reproach of Egypt, which we read about in verse 9. Now God's provision continues for them, not from the sky, but from the ground. And it's no less from God, but it reflects a more permanent means of his provision. And in it also, as we've said, you and I anticipate the day that heaven meets earth when we have all good things in abundance where there are no more tears, nor pain, nor sorrow forever, where God is himself the light in that place, even more reliable than the rising sun tomorrow. What about then that bread of life that Jesus claims to be in the New Testament? Here's the bonus fourth meal. This is Jesus on whom we get to feast. He is all of these things that we've talked about. 
He is that constant supply of food by his word, by whom we can be filled with the truth of God as we read it in scripture. Deuteronomy 8, as it's talking about manna, even says man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And Jesus quoted that in his defense against the enemy in the, in the desert. Jesus is the one in whom we find refuge and who fights for us against the enemies of darkness who stand before us. Jesus is the one who will supply all of our needs in such an unobscured way in the new heavens and the new earth as he is so near to us, as he sustains us in such a way that we will never lack any good thing forever and ever. Jesus is the one who gives us the inheritance of covenant faithfulness. That is, he gives us blessings even though we are unfaithful and deserve curses because we look to him in faith and are therefore united to him forever, we die to our old selves in baptism and we raise as heirs of eternal life because of what Jesus has done. And if anyone is in Christ, you too are in a new era. You are a new creation. In Jesus, you are cut off from your past identity as a slave of Satan. You are a co-heir with Christ. And Jesus is the one who provides what we need for today. As Jesus taught us to pray, and as we prayed earlier, give us this day our daily bread. He teaches us to trust every day. And he himself is that bread that we feast on. He is the bread from heaven, the bread of life, who fills up all who eat of him so that they never go hungry again. Sir, give us this bread that we might not go hungry. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he is that Passover lamb. He is the one of whom we partake. And in so doing, we take the forgiveness of sins through his blood. When we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, as you see on this table before us, we are celebrating all of these things about Jesus. He is the word of life that we find in scripture. He's the bread of life who fills us up with all we need and never makes us go hungry, even as we have begun our possession of the inheritance of eternal life, yet wait the fullness of it. He is the Passover lamb who takes the judgment of God away from us for sinners. He is a heavenly feast. And so let us live with that as our bread, our daily bread. Let that be the truth that we remember and let it point us to that last feast that we anticipate, that wedding supper of the Lamb, when we will feast with Him forever. That feast will be the end of all earthly feasts, yet it's going to be the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth and the feasts that will never end there. On, all, on that day, all the believers whose sins have been paid for by the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, will feast with the risen Lamb and will be brought to Him as His bride to be wed to Him forever. We are heirs, brothers and sisters, recipients of abundant life if we have trusted in God's promise to save these lost, stubborn wanderers like us through Jesus. If you have not yet surrendered your attachments to the poisonous, empty food of the world, put your faith in this spotless lamb and taste and see that the Lord is good towards sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by your provision and your kindness that you have given us salvation. You have paid for our sins. You have taken away judgment. You have given us blessings when we deserved curses. 
because our sins were put on Jesus on the cross and his righteousness was placed on us. Would that be who makes us who we are as we wait for that final day when all enemies are gone and conquered and cast out and would we be participants as you also purge that wickedness from our own hearts and minds and souls and, and words until that last day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.